Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel with me. We're going to be studying together today um, chapter 13, beginning at verse 15 and going all the way through to chapter 14, verse 23. So if you don't have a Bible, I'm not going to put all the verses up. There are way too many. I'm going to read them as we go through the text. So if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to dismiss these kids in about two minutes and about 30 seconds. And there are Bibles in the back. Grab a Bible, sit down, uh, and you can follow along with us. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning with verse 15, is our text this morning. Okay? So children, you're dismissed for Children's Church while the rest of us are in 1 Samuel. Just a quick bring everybody up to speed. Pastor Perry preached last week in Chronicles, uh, kind of took a side uh, it was, it, was, it was not only appropriate, but it was kind of what we've been studying together. Another battle, another place, another time. But as we are studying Samuel, let's remember that the people of God have entered into the promised land. They have become complacent. They have become stubborn. They've become rebellious, refusing to follow King God, who is their king. And they worshiped idols instead of the one true God. God then disciplined them. While they were in the land, raising up armies from the Midianites, the Ammonites, the, and the Philistines to bring a hurting on God's people, um, you know, to teach them not to, and, and in love, teach them not to worship false idols. They would cry out to God, God would send the deliverer, and, and back, you know, back in communion with God, they would go, and that's found in the book of Judges. And Judges closes, Samuel opens up, kind of, uh, uh, the book kind of intermingles together, but... What we've been saying over and over and we have seen is that Samuel opens up and it's, it's a transition going on. A transition from a theocracy, a people ruled and governed by God, to a monarchy where people now are ruled by an earthly king. And that's, that's what we have seen. And God promised them a king. God said, you will get a king. But the king he gave, that they should have is the one that he wants for them, we find in Deuteronomy 17. But they wanted a king anyway. They wanted a different king. They wanted their own king. They wanted a king that would fight their battles. They wanted a king that would judge them rather than God, their king. Scripture tells us that their desire and their decision and motive for a king was a rejection of God. It was another form of idolatry. So God gave them the king, and his king's name is Saul. Partly as a judgment against them to teach them a lesson. They had been given clear description, and I keep saying this because I want you to hear this. In Deuteronomy 17, the job description was clear. The king of Israel shall have the Bible on his lips. He shall read the scriptures daily. He shall learn to fear God and follow the will and word of the Lord. And the narrator showing us already, we'll see it again today, that Saul is not a man who is seeking hard after God or seeking God at all. The narrator goes on to show us that Saul is playing religion. It's not a real relationship with God. He does some things that are religious. We'll see it again today. But he doesn't really have a relationship with God. And my prayer is that you're not here this morning playing religion without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, by his spirit, through his word. After Saul was anointed king, he fought against the Ammonites in chapter 11. (laughs) It's the only chapter he really shines. He brings the prophet with him, and the two of them, the word of God and the king of God, who is fighting God's enemies, go to battle, and they win. Saul even gives glory to God in it. But now in chapter 13, as the battle begins to turn eastward, excuse me, yeah, east of Israel, they're fighting against the Philistines. 
actually Israel is west of Israel. The Philistines are there. The very thing that God told Saul he would do and what he failed to do. And we see in chapter 13 when Saul finally fights against the Philistines, he is stripped of his kingdom. Turn to chapter 13 this morning. We found last time we met two weeks ago that Jonathan now steps up. That is Saul's son. Jonathan is fighting and he defeats the Philistines who are at Geba, which is next to Gibeah. Which is important because Gibeah, Gibeah is between Gibeah and Michmash in, 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 in the, you know, the place of Israel. And that's important because King Saul begins at Michmash and, and after his son Jonathan destroys the Philistines that were there, Saul goes around Israel blasting with the trumpet that he has defeated the Philistines. And he leaves Michmash. And it turns out that this defeat by Jonathan of the Philistines gets the Philistines even more upset. And they actually find themselves at Michmash where Saul was. Look with me to chapter 13, verse 5. They regroup, and I'm telling you, they really regroup. And the Philistine mustered to fight with Israel after Jonathan already defeated them, some of them. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops. They are not happy. Like the sand of the seashore in multitude, they came up and encamped at Michmash. Saul is no longer there, the king, to the east of Beth Haven. And as this threat lingers over Israel, the king Saul, we saw two weeks ago when we looked at this, took matters into his own hand. He went to Gilgal as the prophet told him to do, that he was to wait for seven days. And on the seventh day, Samuel the prophet, bringing the word of God, the direction of God, will come and show the king what to do next. And he will offer sacrifices. What does he do? Saul doesn't wait. The king doesn't wait for Samuel and Gilgal for the seventh day. He begins to offer sacrifices on the seventh day. And Samuel shows up and says, what are you doing? Confronted with his rebellion, he comes up with all kinds of excuses. It was the troops' fault. It was Samuel's fault. It's the Philistines' fault. No, and lastly, it's God's fault. Chapter 13, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You did not wait. You did not obey. You didn't do what I told you to do. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then, if you had done that, Samuel, excuse me, Saul, if you had done that, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Verse 14 of chapter 13. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince or king over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Verse 15, very important. And Samuel arose. We're at Gilgal. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. He left. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, okay? So they headed westward toward the Philistine army, and Saul numbered the people who, look what it says, were present with him, about 600 men. The reason that that's important is that the narrator wants us to see that Samuel the prophet, the word of God, given direction of God's will for the king, has departed in a different direction, the, the, the prophet is leaving, going one way, and Saul is going another way. The word of God is departing. 
Saul the king who was to deliver God's people has, not, has no word from the Lord, no resources to do so. And the narrator wants you to see, wants me to see that there has been a departure of the word of God. And Saul himself contributes now to the helpless place and the hopeless place that Israel finds herself in with this looming threat of the Philistines. So, three simple outlines. The threat is on them. We'll see Israel's military hopelessness. There's a hopelessness that the narrator wants us to see. But then we're going to see Jonathan. Unlike his father, King Saul, his mighty faith in contrast to Saul. And third, God's master plan. So I'm going to read now to you the first part, which is chapter 13, verse 15, from the word of God through the rest of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. I only got a couple of verses up, but I want to read it to you. 1 Samuel, chapter 13, verse 15, the hopelessness of Israel. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people, like we want to know how many people we got, who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and all other people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And the raiders of the camp, oh, excuse me, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah, to the land of Shual, Another company toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves sword or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his sons, had them. Verse 23. And the garrisons of the Philistines went out to pass at Michmash. Okay? That's the word of the Lord. So King Saul and his son, about 600 people, head out toward Geba, toward the battle, toward where the Philistines were encamped at Michmash. Remember now, 600 people against 30,000. At the point that the Philistines, at that point the Philistines make a strategic move, right? They send out these raiders in three companies, sort of like this Navy SEAL or the Special Forces, a commando op, to go out to the roads that that where they were at, at Michmash. Uh, 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 they'll send the fourth detachment in verse 23. It says uh, uh, that, that there was another group that was dispatched. So this is what's going on. The Philistine troops are deploying these special ops people, securing their camp from the roads to get to their camp. But also what's happening here as well is they are stopping any other forces that might come to help Saul. And Jonathan. So all of Israel now, in order to get to them in the center of what's going on in this battle, they've got to go through this special ops. So they're trying to strategically put these people in place to protect their own camp and to stop any more help to come to the king. 
And if that's not bad enough, verse 19 through 21, we learn that Israel does not have modern weaponry. The Israelites, still part of the Bronze Age, the enemies, the Philistines, though, they've come from, I don't know if you know anything about the Philistines, they come from the Aegean region of the Mediterranean near Crete, and they obviously had developed, at that point, some greater weapons. It's so bad that not only were the Israelites behind the times, it says in verse 20 and 21, they were dependent upon the Philistines for the sharpening of their agricultural tools. I looked that up because I'm wondering, what is a Maddox, all right? I had no idea. So, there's no blacksmith in Israel. They don't have any real weapons, and they got to get their agricultural tools sharpened. They've got to go to their enemy to get it done, and they're charging them. Two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, third of a shekel for the sharpening the axes. All this to say, I think the narrator wants us to see that they are hopeless, They are dependent on their enemy. The enemies control everything. There's no blacksmith even in Israel. Israel now has maybe rocks, stones, slings, maybe a javelin against the mighty power of the Philistines. They want to see that. They're they're, they're inferior in number. They're inferior in weaponry. They outnumber them. And they are stronger. That's what, that's what the narrator wants to see. And the only one who had somehow, some way, got a sword or something was King Saul's son, Jonathan. In other words, the fair is completely, the, excuse me, the battle is completely an unfair fight. If you're holding all the goodies, it's fair to you. <laughs> but if you, like Israel, have empty hands, not a very fair fight, it appears. He's outnumbered, he's outgunned. More soldiers, more weaponry. Normally, this would be a problem, but not when you're God. But not when God, the eternal creator, sustainer of the universe, is your king. It's not a problem. Just what David would say to Goliath when he kills him. He said, this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword or a spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand so what if you don't have swords or spears or earthly weapons as long as you are on God's side you are following the will and the ways of God you're in good hands we've been saying over and over that these holy wars are taking place that we're not to kill our enemies right like we're not we're not we're not learning from the old testament that we are to take up swords and hurt people but what we are saying is it teaches us something about the spiritual battle we are in Right? We've been talking about that. That the gospel is war. We have an enemy, Satan. We, we, we have a fight. He wants to defeat, destroy, and kill us as Christians. And defeat us and to stop us from declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Second Corinthians 10, we don't walk in the flesh. Our, our battle's not in the flesh. We wage war not in the flesh. Our weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, not the things of this world. They have divine power. To destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, that our enemies, his number, one, uh, his number one way to get us off the beaten path to stop and defeat us is through lies, through deceit. So let me draw two principles before we move on. Number one, from this text. 
Number one, Satan and his emissaries, his demons, will try to get you and me to use, listen, to use the same weapons that he uses. You see, the world gets to use all kinds of weapons that we as believers do not use, like violence, like like hatred, like falsehood, like gossip and slander on your Twitter account and Facebook, rumors and lies. That, and when we, or shall I say especially when we, let's be honest, when we feel and think that the fight is not fair, that the scales are heavily against us, it is those times that we are tempted to use the weapons of this world. We're prone to lie to get the job that we believe we ought to have. We manipulate relationships through hatred, gossip, and slander so that we feel better about ourselves. And we take up the weapons of this world. We may even, we may even resort to violence if pushed too far. But remember this, family. No matter, no matter what this world can throw at you, no matter how bad the odds look, it will always be unfair if you're a Christian. And some of you are thinking right now, yes, we're in the minority. The world is going to always, it's always going to be an unfair fight because of the battle uh, weaponry they have. That's not what I'm saying. Some of you think it's unfair against you. I'm saying that it's not fair against you. It's unfair for you. It's not fair because your God, your master, and your king is omnipotent, sovereign, and always working his providence for your good and his glory. Therefore, you are always, always, always will have the advantage as believers in Jesus Christ. Not against us. It's for us. Nothing, no, nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand. Paul says in Romans, all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We always have the advantage. Number two, we learn Satan wants to keep the weaponry that God has given us Out of our hands. That's how he can attack us and overcome us. God has given us what we need. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. He's given us the armor that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. He says in in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 2, fastening the belt of truth. Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them, children of God. Set them apart, grow in holiness. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth, right? If the enemy can keep you from the word of God, if he can keep God's word out of your mind, if he can keep you from reading, meditating meditating upon, and obeying God's word, he'll keep the, the weapon God has given you to use against the enemy. So, so if you don't, I just don't have time to read the scripture. I don't really have time to put God's word in my heart and in my mind. It's exactly where the enemy wants to keep you. Not knowing the truth. 
Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. The, the righteousness that we ought to put on is not our own. It's Christ. It's his perfect life. It is his perfect life, his perfect obedience, imputed, accounted to us by faith, and therefore the righteousness of Christ manifests itself, how? By an obedient walk with God. It's not, it's not trying to do the right thing so that God will love me. It's Christ has already done it for me. And that should show itself in our walk. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. Our shoes are for our feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace, that we should know the peace of God and the peace with God. That's a weapon that we have. And then he writes in, again in Ephesians. He says, in all circumstances, take on the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with prayer and supplication. Listen, how do we know about the glorious truths of the gospel? How do we stand firm upon the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, his righteousness that's imputed to us, and his death on the cross that that, that provides forgiveness of sins? How do we know that? By the word of God. How can we be sure that our sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins have been paid for? By the word of God. By reading the gospel, believing the gospel, appropriating the gospel, and praying the gospel. The enemy does not have a chance against us when we wield that kind of weaponry. But he wants to keep that out of our hands. So when things begin to look hopeless, when the enemy seems to have it all, God is our hope. God has given us what we need to stand firm. Sometimes, like Israel, we'll see in a moment, brings seemingly hopeless situations into our lives so that we can learn to trust God. That's what this text is all about, trusting God. So there's this hopelessness, and then there's this shining faith. Mighty faith of Jonathan. Hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. Actually, I think it was more like this. Come, let us go to the garrison, to the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts, they moved a little bit, of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Migron. The people were with him there, about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub. Looking for names, there you go. Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name was Bozaz and the other name was Sena or Sina. The one crag rose up on the north in front of Michmash. This is all historical truth. And the other to the south, in front of Geba. You got these two rocky crags. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to these uncircumcised Philistines. It may be that the Lord, notice what he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, Jonathan. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we'll stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But 
Verse 10, if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. This will be a sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews, out of the holes from which they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan. Come on up, armor bearer. Come to us. Uh, we'll show you a thing or two. I could imagine what they were thinking. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on. Let's go. Come up after the Lord, for the Lord has given them into our hands. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up, his hands and feet, his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed 20 men within, as it were, half a furlough's length in an acre of land. It's one day. It's one particular day. And Jonathan's like, come on, let's go to the Philistine. Let's go to the other side. Let's go up that road to encounter this Philistine outpost. Now, the Rocky Craig is this, is this large rock formation in between this rock formation. They're going to go, and when they go, it says they're going to see us. And look at verse 1b. For he did not tell his father. Like I said before, Historical narratives many times just tell us what happened, not necessarily why. But I think, considering the text, I think it's clear that there's something not right between father and son, right? Something's not right. You don't slip away from the king who's your father unless at least you believe if you tell him he's not going to be happy. Something's not right. We already saw in chapter 13 when Jonathan first struck the Philistines, they got even more angry and they came after Israel. They're coming after 30,000 or so. So I think that Saul, King Saul, is not being told by his son because I think, I think Saul is at the place of thinking, you know what, we're getting into this battle. They seem to be very angry. Like the old saying, let the sleeping dogs lie. Why instigate trouble? Let's just wait. Maybe the situation will change. Maybe the people will just... Forget about us and go away. Saul doesn't want to cause trouble with the Philistines and Jonathan no longer wants Israel to be troubled by the Philistines. Great contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Look at verse 2. Saul is staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in a pomegranate cave. Some of you have NIV, have tree. Either way, he's out of the sun, out of the limelight, a little further away from the Philistines, and Jonathan is about to take on the Philistines accompanied by his armor bearer. Now, notice with me also, and the narrator wants us to see this. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us who is with Saul. Look what it says. Abijah, first of all, if you work your way backwards on this, on this uh, family lineage, is the grandson of Eli. Remember Eli at Shiloh? He would be judged and excluded from the priesthood. His father was Phineas. Remember him? He's the meat-loving woman chaser from the church. His uncle is Ichabod. Remember him? Ichabod was named when the covenant, Ark of the Covenant was taken. It means glory has departed from the land. It's that guy <laughs> wearing the ephod, which is uh, the way in which Israel would discern the will of God. What the narrator wants us to see is that this priest... Abijah is part of the rejected priesthood of Eli, and we see Saul from chapter 13 is the rejected king of Israel. That's not a coincidence. 
Saul does not get instruction from Samuel at Gilgal because of his disobedience. And now he is seeking the Lord. So it seems he's playing religion. He's got this priest, this rejected blind priest, wearing an ephod. But you know what? The text tells us that he never sought the will of God. So Jonathan's planning fearless action. Saul is up in the hills, further south, further away, at the outskirts of Gibeah. The contrast is clear. It's, it's Jonathan taking the initiative. Jonathan moving. Saul sitting. Uh, uh, Saul content to play on the defense, and Jonathan is on the offense. Look at verse 6. He says to his armor bearer, Come up. Let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It's kind of a, a shot against them. It may be that the Lord, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or what? By few. Jonathan at this moment is uncertain what God will do, but he is certain that God can do. He's uncertain for what God will do, but he is certain that God can do. He has no guarantee, he has no promise that God is going to work for him, for, uh, for him, but it may be that God will work for him because nothing can hinder the Lord. He could save by many or he could save by few. Does that remind you of anything? Does it remind you maybe of Gideon in chapter 7 where God's uh, people, there was 32,000 men and yet God whittled them down to 300 and they fought against the Midianites and won? Does it remind you of 2 Kings 18 when, when a king of Syria bunkered down Jerusalem and, and God's good king of Judah, Hezekiah, prayed and prophesied and God's, excuse me, prophet prophesied and even though they were in, they, it looked like the slaughter was imminent, in the morning they wake up, all the army is dead outside Jerusalem. Or do you know the story in 2 Kings with Elisha? He's, they're bunkered in. There, there's, there, there, there's no way to win. 2 Kings 6, Elijah's with Dothan. And he says to Elijah, my master, what are we going to do? We're surrounded by the army. We are, we are, we're, we're dead. Elijah says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Are you kidding? Do you see the army? There's two of us. And Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. The hills were alive, not with the sound of music. Or how about the three Jewish boys in Daniel's day? You may know them as Rack, Shack, and Benny if you watched VeggieTales. As I do now. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Oh king, we're not bowing down. We're not committing idolatry. We're not doing it. And you want to put us in the fiery furnace? Go ahead. Go ahead. God will deliver us. And if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down. So he'll either save us from the fiery furnace. Or we will die in the fiery furnace. But we're not going to commit idolatry. Jonathan says, he may, it may be that God will deliver us. That's not a lack of faith. 
but rather he was willing to trust God no matter what the results are. You hear me? Just like those three Hebrew boys. God isn't dependent on numbers. That's what Jonathan is saying. He could win with a few. He could win with many. We're trusting the Lord. And here is, I think, we could talk about faith in in different ways, but I think one of the essential ways in which we learn from this text about the truth of genuine faith is that God is and has infinite power. He is the sovereign Lord. Is there anything too hard for God, Genesis 18? I know you can do all things, Job learned in Job 42. Nothing is too hard for you, Jeremiah the prophet said. Nothing will be impossible with God, Luke 1. With God, all things are possible, Matthew 19. So family, do you know this this morning? Are you relying upon all things are possible with God? That nothing is too hard for him. You see, your faith in and of itself will not save. Your faith in and of itself will not save you, will not deliver you. Now, before you burn me on a stake as a heretic, what I mean is, what's more important is the object of your faith. Dr. Tim Keller, in a wonderful book called The Reasons for God, he says this, the faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. Imagine you're on a high cliff. You lose your footing and you begin to fall. Just beside you as you are falling is a branch sticking out of the edge of the cliff. It's your only hope. And it's more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubt and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch, end quote. If you don't know that, if you don't know who the object of your faith is, if you're not trusting in the omnipotent power and sovereign goodness of God, you won't put your faith in him. You can't really truly trust him. How could you? Faith in God knows that he is of infinite power. It doesn't presume on this power, as Jonathan doesn't, but rather chooses to follow God wherever God would lead us and trust God with the results. Jonathan says, verse 6, maybe the Lord will work for us. It reminds me of Jesus' prayer, right? Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup, but, but not what I will, but what you will. True faith in God submits to God. True faith in God knows the power of God, knows that he is both wise and good, and submits to God and trusts God with the circumstances because he's all-powerful and he is always good to his children. And that's what just happens to come up this weekend. And that's what drives me a little bit crazy, oh my, I will say hatred, I know it's a tough word, for this word faith theology. Of false teachers like Kagan and Copeland and Price and yes, Joel Olstein, who teaches you to speak into reality and it will become your reality. They teach this force, this is what they teach, the force of faith. 
and you work this force of faith by your own language and it even puts God in subject to you. That's their, that's their whole point. And, and it's independent of God's sovereignty. It's independent of God. God actually is bound. They will teach you. That's idolatry. That's turning your faith and by extension yourself into a little God. That is not what real faith looks like. And certainly not the mighty faith of Jonathan. Jonathan shows the essence of such faith. Trusting in the Lord is precisely what Saul lacked and did not do. God's king must trust God. And look what happens in this text. It's contagious. All of a sudden, Jonathan's like, we're going to trust God. And the armor bearer's like, okay, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. I'm with you, heart and soul. You know what? Being around people who trust God is so important for believers because we encourage each other. We strengthen each other. Jonathan tells him, we're going to go, and and we're going to show ourselves to them. I mean, that sounds like a bad strategy, doesn't it? Like, let's go in the middle of these rocks, and hey, we're right here, you know? And that's what he does. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm bonded in slavery to these uncircumcised demons, and, and it's not an option. And you know what? We'll do this. If, if they say, come on up, we'll go up. God has given them. That's our sign. But if they say, stay still, we'll just stay still. And I think Jonathan's going to fight him either way. I don't know how you much of a choice, really, at that point. You're like, hey, here we are. I mean, where are you going to go? The Philistines think they got the high ground, but they don't realize (laughs) that Jonathan, in his mighty faith, has the high ground. He's trusting in the Lord. And it says that they climbed up. He's a rock climber with hands and feet, it says. And they had this two-pronged attack fight. Jonathan starts taking him down, and then the arm bearer comes behind and takes him out. Captain America or something. You know what I mean? These guys are just unbelievable. Intense hand-to-hand bat. Look what it says in verse 14. Half a furlough length and half an acre of land. So, this building's on more than a half an acre of land. And they take out what it says, 20 men. That's a movie right there. The stunning victory over these men get everybody in an uproar. The Philistine camp is, 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 is buzzing. Um, the battle concludes, look at verse 15. And there was panic in the camp. I mean, it just killed, two guys just killed 20 people. There's panic in the camp, panic in the field, everyone in the people, including the, 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 the special forces, the garrison, even the raiders tremble, and the earthquake. Perfect timing. God's like, let me shake the earth just to get you guys a little bit more recognizing that I'm the Lord, your God, you're not. And he shakes the earth. <laughs> it's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. What shall we say these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Who shall come against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Before we move on, let me just mention. John, we're in Old Testament era. Scriptures haven't been written. Jonathan is saying, Lord, this is what's, if they come down, that's a sign. And some people may be thinking, is that how we are supposed to act today? Are we supposed to just put these signs before the Lord? Some people, when they do that, I know none of you would do this. If the sun comes up in the morning, I will know that I'm supposed to, like, really? The sun's coming up in the morning. If the light turns green before I get, like, 
family. Be careful. That's very dangerous. As believers, New Testament, we don't rely upon signs. We have something far greater, far more valuable. We have the complete word of God, the indwelling presence and permanent sealing of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who desires for us to hear the voice of Christ, to follow the Lord. Can there be, can there be supernatural circumstances? Absolutely. But the word of God has the final say. And I might add, that most of the time in the Bible when people are seeking signs it's because of weak faith, not strong faith. Most of the time. You've been given God's promise. You've been given God's principles in his word. The word of God is going to direct you to the will of God. Israel's mighty military hopelessness, Jonathan's mighty faith, and let's finish up with the victory of God. Look at verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, a multitude was dispersing. Hey, what's going on over there? And Saul said to the people, count, is there somebody missing? And behold, they found out it's Jonathan and his armor bearer, who never gets a name. This guy's a warrior. So Saul said to Abijah, bring the ark. Some of you may have ephod, but the ark. For the ark went before Israel, verse 19. Now Saul, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp, it began to get hectic of the Philistines increased more and more. So Paul, Saul said, you know, forget it to the priest. Withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. There's great confusion. The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time had gone up with them. They also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Verse 22, likewise, when all the men of Israel who hid themselves in the hill, they heard what was going on. What it says, they too follow hard after the battle. So God sends this well-timed earthquake, a divine-inspired panic in the land. It gets Saul's attention. There's something going on down there. Saul is wondering, like, what, what's happening? Hey, take a count. Is somebody missing? Oh, my son. And his armor bearer are gone. He calls for the ark to get some instruction and then goes, ah, forget it. And that's just like King Saul. King Saul is not a man of patience. One commentator wrote, Saul is a person who prays when he should act and act when he should pray. His fatal impulses will get him in a lot of trouble. The text tells us that there are four things going on here. The Philistines, due to some great confusion, they're fighting each other. King's men, King Saul's men are fighting. The Israelites who are in the camp of the Philistines, what they're doing there, I don't know. Maybe they were there by force. I don't know. They're fighting. And then you got the cowards who are hiding in the rocks. They're fighting against them. And of course, Rambo and his partner. Family, what we see here, again, one man's faith, one man's trust in God affected the whole camp. Because of Jonathan's faith, Saul and his men fight. Those who are defected fight. Those who are hiding fight. You know what Paul says in the New Testament? Brothers, he says, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. Verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. So the Lord saved Israel that day. That is verbatim. Verbatim. Listen, verbatim. The quote from Exodus 14.30. When God delivered 
the people through the Red Sea out of bondage in Egypt. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. It's deliberate uses stresses the importance of Israel's battle, but more importantly, God gets the glory. What Jonathan knew could happen did happen. The Lord saved by a few, and God proved himself again to be sovereign and powerful, all-powerful. Family, this is a classic example of what we say here all the time at King's Chapel. Man is responsible to trust God. Man is responsible to have faith in God. Man is responsible to walk with God by faith. But ultimately, God is sovereign over the universe for his glory and our good. We must rely on God as the source of direction in our life. We must believe that God is trustworthy. And God is omnipotent. He has the power and the right to govern all things toward his wise and holy purposes. God is always working to preserve, provide, and manage all of creation, working his eternal plans and purposes, again, for his glory and our good. Does he use people of faith? Yes. Look at Jonathan. Does he use people who lack faith? Yes. Look at Saul. Isaiah, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no other like me, declaring from the end, from the beginning. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. So let me leave you with this question. What particular area of your life this morning, what particular area of your life this morning is the Lord calling you to trust him? By faith. Examine our hearts. Ask God to reveal to you what it is and that he would give you the confidence to trust him. How can we do that? How can we know and trust God in all our circumstances? Now listen carefully. You can trust God with your whole life because, listen, one minute, because the ultimate battle The biggest fight, the greatest enemy, and the deepest hopelessness of your life has already been conquered. Colossians 2 says we were dead in our sins. God made us alive, forgiving us of our sins. He canceled the record, the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. He set aside it by nailing it to the cross. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame. By triumphing over them in Christ. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who never sinned, entered the courtroom of God and stands in the gap of the guilty sinner, bearing our sin upon himself. And the Father pours out the full measure of his wrath upon Christ until the wrath was absorbed and exhausted and every bit of justice been satisfied and forgiveness is offered and received. Jesus conquers Already the greatest enemy, death. He disarmed already the greatest enemy, Satan. The tomb is empty, and now we have the greatest hope. Do you really think your decision is going to thwart the goodness of God in your life? Do you really think that you have the power to mess up your life so bad, which God has ordained? We should, we should care about decisions we make, and we make bad decisions, we make good decisions, and we try to make the right decision, We try to walk responsibly in faith because faithfulness brings glory to God. But let me ask you again. 
What particular area of your life is the Lord calling you to trust him? You can trust him because Christ has already conquered death, your enemy, the grave. Trust him this morning. Father, we come from different circumstances, different situations. Lord, you know each one of us intimately. Father, you know the struggles we have. Father, you know the circumstances we're in. Lord, we're asking for your spirit to draw us close through your word to recognize that you are our God. You are worthy of our trust. Nothing, oh, nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Help us this morning to put those things that we cling to and hold to that we ought to give to you, to you, so that we would trust you because you are worthy of our trust. The cross teaches us, the cross teaches us and shows us that you have already conquered the most important things so that now we can trust you in the everyday things of life, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.